You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 36. The title of Psalm 36 in my Bible says, How Precious is Your Steadfast Love. The subtitle says, To the Choir Master of David, the servant of the Lord. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, God, we ask that you would come now in all of your power. God, give us your spirit that we might hear and that we might respond to the preaching of your word. Lord, you know each and every person in this room. I know that you have a purpose and a plan for each of us. And uh, leave it to you, Father, to use really imperfect um, men like me to stand in a pulpit to proclaim your word. So God, I pray that you would take um, our time, <coughs> or that you, would, that you would magnify the name of Christ and the work of the cross to us. <coughs> Lord, that you would hold up in front of us a mirror, so to speak. Help us to see the depth of our sin. Help us to see the greatness, the power of the gospel work of Jesus at that cross. Help us. Help us to be dependent upon you for everything that we need. Pray that you would do that and then some this morning. I trust you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so Psalm 36, if, you, uh, if you're kind of tracking along as we're reading through it, I would kind of... Uh, categorized around three basic themes. You see them on the screen in front of you. There's a theme of sin, a theme of faith, and a theme of prayer. What Psalm 36 is, is it's a confession of sin in the first few verses, and then there's a confession of faith in the next few verses, and then it ends with a prayer for God to continue pouring out His love on His people. That's the basic structure of the text. 
Now, in our culture, not just our culture, but I think since the beginning of time, but in our culture now that we live in, I think it's very common to downplay the reality of our sin, right? And I think it's very common at the same time as we downplay the reality of our sin to kind of reconstruct God into a being who really isn't bothered so much by our rebellion. Kind of just gives us a pass. But the beauty of the Bible, I mean, when you open the Bible, when you read it, when you study it, the Bible actually acts like a mirror. It shows us the the horror, the destructiveness, and and the brokenness of our sin. It also, at the same time, though, shows us um, the the righteous uh, justice and trustworthiness and the, the, the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's like, it's a mirror that shows us both those two things in tension, our brokenness and God's perfection. You see, as we study the Bible, what happens as we do that is the Spirit of God comes and speaks to us and we're confronted with our own wickedness, confronted with our, with, with our own brokenness, our, our rebellion, right? And in the midst of that, we're also then introduced to the perfect wrath of God against us for that sin. And at the same time, we're also invited to come on in and to find shelter in the perfect love of Christ at the cross of Calvary. It's a summary of what we see when we study the Bible. It's like a mirror. It shows us all those things. The problem with a mirror is this. Looking into a mirror can, can have like multiple effects on a person. You know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes we look into a mirror, don't like what we see, try to cover up what we don't like, right? Sometimes we look into a mirror, don't like what we see, so we wind up obsessing over that image that we don't like, and we wind up falling into some kind of like self-loathing, we fall into despair, some kind of depression because we feel unworthy, unwanted, we don't think we look good enough. Sometimes we look into a mirror and we wind up comparing ourselves with other people. Anybody ever do that? Right? Uh, compare ourselves with other people, right? I'm not a, as attractive as that person or fatter than I used to be. <laughs> I may compare myself with a past me. Um, or the flip side is we might compare ourselves with another person in kind of a vain way. At least I'm not as ugly as they are. I'm not as fat as I used to be, <laughs> right? It's just the flip side. Um, so again, looking into the mirror can have multiple effects on us. And all those responses, and probably then some, right? I could probably stand here all day and give us different ways in which we respond when we look into the mirror. But all of those responses to the image that we see in the mirror, at the end of the day, become self-centered, don't they? They become self-centered. You're looking at your image in the mirror, and you're thinking about self. And oftentimes, that thinking about self, that self-centeredness that comes out of that, what we might call vanity, so to speak, uh, can can oftentimes lead to to multiple kinds of what I might call self-help or self-improvement strategies, right? Don't like the way I look, so I need to go work out more, yada, yada, yada. (coughs) But here's the reality. God's Word is different than the physical mirrors that we look in. Although we can sometimes... Hey, I'm supposed to do this when my sister walks in late. Y'all will be like, she's going to kill you. But no, she said that when she walks in late, I'm supposed to draw attention to her and say, everybody, would you say hi, Jesse? 
not kidding. This is a conversation we had, so. <laughs> if you didn't know, this is my sister Jessie. This is my sister Jessie. Now you know. Back to God's word. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, sis. <laughs> Back to God's word. Uh, the mirror of God's word can cause some of those same responses. But the reality about God's word is that when we look into it, we're, we're intended to see our sin for what it is. We're intended to see God for who he really is. And then the outcome of seeing those two things, my sin for what it is and God for who he is, the outcome of that should be a greater dependence on God. Catch that? A greater and deeper hunger for God. The more I'm confronted with my own sin, and the more that I see the, the, the greatness and the perfection of God, those two things combined together should drive me to my knees in dependence and hunger for more of God. So track with me through the text. Look with me first at verses 1 through 4. Look at the image of a sinful human that David lays out for us. So when you think about sin... I think we oftentimes think about it in abstract or non-personal ways, right? Uh, when we think about sin uh, in various ways, kind of at various times, right? When we think about sin like it's something that we only struggle with occasionally. Or we, 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 we try to treat sin like, um, kind of like it's an infection that we don't want to catch, right? Put the mask on, jab the vein, whatever, Right? It's like, it's like an infection we don't want to catch. Lock yourself in your home. You don't want to catch that. Stay away from all bad stuff. Isolate. The Christians have been good at this, right? If you've been a Christian for longer than 15 minutes, you know this, right? Stay away from that which is evil. Anything that even looks remotely evil. Don't want to catch sin. So we think about it sometimes like it's an infection we don't want to catch. Uh, I, we also think about sin um, like it's a problem in someone else's life. You ever find yourself doing that? Like, you kind of turn up your nose a little bit, or you, you, you know, even if it's not outward, deep down inside, you just start thinking, man, I, I can't believe that they would do that. Um, you know, one of the common triggers for this is usually politics, right? When we all agree, regardless of where you land on the aisle, we get so frustrated and so angry at the people on the other side that we just, we almost start thinking about them on that side, as though they're a lot worse than we are. And sometimes for very good reasons, right? The conflict sometimes and their argument and the frustration can be very well-founded. That's just another way that we think about sin, like it's a problem in somebody else's life. Um, but the reality, we've all heard this. If you've been in church at all or read the Bible, if you've known a Christian, the reality is all of us are sinful human beings, Right? We don't just commit sin. It's not just something that we do. Um, it is something we do, but it's actually more than that. Sin is actually part of us. It's living inside of us. The moment we were born, we're born into sin. It becomes part of our DNA. We're broken. The book of Romans. Like, I, I could have I thrown so much Romans into this all day, right? If you've never read Romans, I just encourage you, go read Romans after you hear this sermon and to digest some of what it says. The doctrine of sin is so clear in the book of Romans. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Because all of us are sinful. 
We don't just commit sin. It's part of us. Like from deep within the darkest recesses of our beings, all the way from those invisible, hidden, private places, moving out to the outward thoughts and activity of our lives, sin is actually part of being human. You can't cover it up. You can't put some makeup on. You can't put a hat on and change your clothes and make it look better. You can't do any of that. Will actually summarize that really well in his definition of a confession of sin earlier too. His, his definition of the gospel. There's nothing that you and I can do to make that better. David, in these first few verses, look at what he says. I don't want to. I want to make this comment. Uh, it's not in my footnotes, um, but if you'd be interested in checking out the commentary that I typically go to. Uh, commentator said this week that the, the original Hebrew, when David writes this, when he says the first few words, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, there's no fear of God before his eyes, the words, the pronouns his and his are actually my. Um, more, more perfectly rendered, it would say transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. There is no fear of God before my eyes. From that point forward, the rest of it's very personal. Um, so he says this. He says that sin, we know who David is, right? Killed Goliath with a little stone. Well, actually knocked him out and then killed him with his own sword. I really want to see that made into a really real good movie. Not a low-budget movie. <laughs> That's David, King David, right? He says that sin calls out to him from deep within his heart. And when he listens to the voice of sin from deep within, what does it do? All of us should know this, right? When we give in to that little voice of sin within, what, what does it do? And when we act on it, we think on it, what does it, it, it proves something, doesn't it? Here's what he says it proves. He says it proves that I don't fear God like I really should. That's what it proves. Every one of us has experienced that. He goes on and he says, sin is so deceptive. Sin is so deceptive that I actually believe that I'm better than I really am, right? I, I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm a pretty decent Christian, right? I go to church three times a month. I show up at a small group once a month. I give a little bit of money out of my pocket, and sometimes I serve on the schedule. And every once in a while, I tell my neighbor, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a pretty good person now, Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying we, we, I actually flatter myself into thinking that I'm better than I really am. I, I flatter myself into believing that nobody's going to see the brokenness in my life. And that's the thing that we are so good at. Cover and prove and pretend. It's, it's human. It's part of our human nature, part of our fallen nature, part of our broken nature, our sinful nature. He moves on and he says in verse 3, he says, hey, we speak and we behave in ways that are destructive, right? Destructive and foolish and wicked. Those are the, some of the words that he's basically using. My illustration uh, that I landed on this week, that I came across in my study is when we do this, when we act this way, we're like blind men who can't see the damage and the destruction of our own trip down a railroad track into an oncoming train. That's what it's like. Like spiritual blindness. 
Spiritual blindness is worse than physical blindness. If, if you've been with us for any amount of time, we used to have a blind drummer named Tyler who walked around with a cane and sometimes he'd smack you with it. And Tyler was such a riot. When it came to like thinking through what blindness does, in a physical sense it's bad, but at least in a physical sense you have other senses to rely on. Right? When it comes to spiritual blindness, you have no other sense to rely on. You're wandering down a railroad track. You're taking a trip that you think is going to be beautiful. And there's a train barreling down on you at 85 miles an hour. In the secret recesses of our thoughts and desires, or or our thoughts and and desires, right? The things that we want, the things that we think about. David says in verse 4 that what we actually do is we actually obsess, right? And we make plans to do things that are wrong or evil, even if we've got them dressed up a little bit with some lipstick. We make plans to do evil things that are typically driven by our own desire for things like what? Self-advancement or self-promotion or self-improvement, right? Or self-gratification. Or how about this other one? A lot of us like this one, self-protection, right? See, the image of a sinful human in these first few verses It's an image, it's a picture, if you will, of something that is absolutely rotten to the core. Now, I, you know, I don't know how many times you sit in a church and hear a preacher go, you are rotten to the core, and you like it, (laughs) right? Like, oh, thank you, (laughs) thank you for telling me I'm rotten to the core. I don't know why we would like that. It's, it's, It's not necessarily meant to be liked, right? It's meant to kind of shake us up and bring us back to reality, it's the image of something that, even if it looks good on the outside, it has these tiny little shreds of impurity hidden deep down within. This is the image of someone, like I said, who's blindly running down the tracks with no fear of that oncoming train. This is an image of you and me, no matter how much we try to cover things up or try to prove that we're better than we really are or try to compare ourselves with others. At the end of the day, the picture that we get in these first four verses is that we are horrifyingly wicked to the core. Thank God that's not the only image we have in Psalm 36. Okay? Because the second image we have is we have an image of a perfect God, verses 5 through 9. So the image of a perfect God is something that our desperately wicked hearts need to see. We need to see it. Without a perfect God, there's absolutely no hope in this world. You and I have no hope for the days of our lives if there is no perfect God. No amount of trying to make the world a better place will ever succeed without a perfect God to redeem and to repair the brokenness that comes from the sin of humanity. Here's the reason that I say that. You ever try to fix something with a broken tool? You have no hope of getting that thing fixed if your tool is broken, do you? You got to go get a new tool, or you got to restore the broken one. You got to repair the broken tool so that you then might fix the broken item. I find this out often when I try to work on vehicles or motorcycles. 
is useless without a good tool. What we've just learned in the first image is that you and I are absolutely broken tools. In some regard, you could say we are useless tools. My old friend Dale Phillips does this skit where he takes an old rusty hammer and he talks about how broken it is and he drops it on the floor like it's absolutely useless. And then he comes back over later and he, he mimics what it's like for a perfect God to pick up that broken tool and to fix things with it. It's a picture of a God who redeems and restores the tool so that other things might be fixed. This is why David shifts gears from the first image to the second image. He shifts gears from confessing sin to then confessing faith in a perfect God who is these things. He's loving. He's faithful. He's righteous. He's just. He's redeeming. Those are the five character traits that are going to show up as we look through these verses. And those five character traits then drive us to the cross with a deep sense of dependence and hunger for five more things that God gives us. There's five blessings that flow out of God's five character traits that we see. Flowing out of God's lovingness, God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's redemptive character. Flowing out of that are these blessings that you and I receive when we find shelter. We get protection, we get provision, we get joy, we get life, we get light. We're not living in the darkness anymore. That's the flow of the text overall. <coughs> David literally says, verse 5, that God's steadfast love extends not to just to the moon and back, as one commentator says. You ever hear that phrase? I love you to the moon and back. David says that God's steadfast love doesn't just extend to the moon and back, it extends to the moon and beyond. It extends to the moon and beyond, and that his faithfulness actually exceeds our wildest dreams, according to verse 5. You see, God will never fail to follow through on his promises. God never makes a promise and then turns back around on it. God never has to come to you and say, I'm sorry I didn't follow through on that. I'm sorry I didn't make that happen. God never has to do that because he's absolutely faithful. Every time you or I have to say, I'm sorry I didn't follow through. I'm sorry I didn't do what I said I was going to do. That's an indicator that you and I are unfaithful to the core. But the reality is that God is completely faithful. He never fails to follow through on his promises. He will always do what is right and good. Always do what is right and good. Why? Because he's absolutely righteous. He's absolutely just. According to verse 6. And since God has promised to provide a way to be saved from the consequences of our sin, then what can we do? We can rest assured that the work of Christ at the cross, that that is more than sufficient enough to finish the work of redemption. So powerful to think about that. Since God is loving, since he's faithful, since he's righteous, since he's just, since he's redeeming, and what are the blessings? I listed them earlier, right? Those five blessings that flow out of those five character attributes. 
since he's loving, faithful, righteous, just, redeeming, what can we do? We can take refuge. When I was a kid, I, I love sharing this story. When I was a kid, my sister and I you know, lived on this old uh, farmstead out by Walton, Nebraska, a little white farmhouse that was broken down and shabby. Heated it with wood. Half the time didn't have running water in the winter because our pipes would freeze and things like that. Man, when it would snow, it would snow like crazy. We lived on top of a hill and the wind was nuts. Old gravel road. So we would uh, build snow forts on either side of the gravel road. Anybody ever do this when you were a kid? In the ditch, building the snow forts. We'd be lobbing bombs at each other, taking refuge, hiding from each other in the snow fort. You know, I think one of the best... Uh, memories I might have of that is one of us, and I don't remember which one of us it was, we went running across the, the, uh, the gravel road and just basically jumped on top of the snow fort, totally demolished it. And it was probably me. My sister was probably screaming at me. But <laughs> The beauty about taking refuge and taking shelter under God's wings, right? Like this image of a little chiclet underneath it's the, the mother hen, is that no matter what jumps on top, it can never be crushed. It's not like a snow fort. It doesn't fall apart when all of the fury of Satan's sin and death come after you. We take refuge in the shelter of God's presence. And when we do, he'll protect us when we run to him. Like God will provide for our every need. Now listen, when we say need... Uh, as humans, don't we have a tendency to go, I want that, therefore I need. Like, I want the biggest, baddest Harley Davidson you can get. And consequently, my wife did say I could once. You should talk to her about that later. She'll clarify for us. Um, but I don't need that, do I? Right? Like, we have a tendency to take things that we really want, and we find ways to justify why we need it. God will provide for our every need, not, not our every want. And, and at the same time, he'll fill our hearts with joy, true joy, not, not the momentary happiness that comes from getting yet another thing, but actual true joy that comes by being in God's presence during the most difficult of seasons. When you find shelter in God, that's what he gives us, that kind of deep and abiding joy where you can walk through anything. I would challenge all of you, if you haven't yet, read stories of some of the people that died for their faith, that were burned at the stake, that were, had their skin peeled off their bodies, that were dismembered, that, that were sawed in half. Like, you get sawed in half, you don't just die quickly. It's very painful and disgusting, right? Read stories of these martyrs who died horribly, singing praises to Jesus with smiles on their faces because they're ready to go be with their Savior. That, that is true joy amidst true suffering. Not the spoiled, rotten kind of suffering that we Americans face, but the true suffering that believers have faced over the centuries. And they died with joy. Not the kind of momentary happiness that comes from getting something new or getting my circumstances changed. True joy comes from finding shelter in the presence of God. The only life worth living, really, if you look at verse 9, the only life worth living is the one that's spent in the presence of God. Why? Well, because in his presence, according to David, we are removed from the darkness 
as the light of Christ shines into our souls. Now, sometimes, sometimes we think about darkness as something that moves in and takes over the light. I, I, maybe there's some language in the Bible that might support that, but I, for sake of argument right now, I'm going to say I, we probably all know better than that anyways. Like, realistically, it's not like darkness moves in and takes over light. It's just that the light has gone out, and you just need to flip the switch, right? Or put a new light bulb in. And once you do that, the darkness scatters. This is the picture of what happens when you find your refuge in Jesus. When you say, Jesus is my everything. He's all that I need. I don't need a paycheck. I don't need a family. I don't need a wife. I don't need kids. I don't need motorcycles. I don't need nothing. I just need Jesus. And the more and more that you get there and say, Jesus, you're all that I need, the more his light then shines into your life and the darkness is removed from your soul. If you've been in that place where you're, where you're struggling with sin and that brokenness in your life and that rebellion and that wickedness, can I just say that darkness has closed in because the light of Christ has gone out in your life to the extent, to the extent that the darkness has taken over. What are you going to do to flip that light switch? What are you going to do to put a new light bulb in? See, without this image that we're looking at right now, without this image of a perfect God, then the image of our sin that we looked at previously would just leave us in absolute despair, right? We'd have no hope whatsoever because we'd soon realize, like I said earlier, that broken humans are helpless to fix anything perfectly. At the end of the day, we are in desperate need of a perfect God, a perfect God who will lovingly and faithfully and rightly and justly and redemptively the broken pieces back together as we seek shelter in him, as we seek provision from him, as we seek joy in his presence, as we seek his kind of life for our life, as we seek to have his light turned up amidst the darkness of our hearts. We do that by seeking his presence, right? And as I said at the beginning, when you see these two images, the image of your brokenness and your sin, and your hopelessness, and you see the image of God's faithfulness, His perfection, when you see those two together, it's meant to drive you to your knees in prayer. And that's what happens with David at the very end. It drives him to his knees in prayer at the end of this psalm. He sees the image of his own sin, and he sees the image of a perfect God. And in light of that, in the face of that, what else could he do but bow his knee in prayer, right? It's the last image we see. It's this picture of, of, of prayer that is absolutely hungry and it's absolutely dependent on God and nothing else. Verses 10 through 12. When you and I realize that our stomachs are empty, which by the way, mine is right now, and that food smells good. When you and I realize that our stomachs are empty, we get hungry, right? And when you get hungry, you start depending on something to satisfy that hunger or someone. And in this psalm, we've already seen David, like I said, he's confessed the depths of his sin. He's also confessed the perfection of God. And both of those images were meant to create this hunger in David and in us. That would, at the end of the day, invite us to depend upon God as we bow before him in prayer. Now, when you think about prayer... It can be kind of an intimidating thing, right? Um, a few weeks ago, I got a text from one of our members 
um, who said, hey, thanks for asking me to help serve communion and pray for people. Um, the serving communion part, not so bad. The praying for other people part, not so bad. Praying for you was really intimidating. And, you know, it just, you know, because when we serve communion, and I was serving communion that day too, and we always pray for each other at the end, the, the two communion servers. And I remember thinking, hmm, well, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you for praying for me. Um, but for me, you know, as a, I hope you get this, professional Christian, I've probably long since forgotten what it's like to be that maybe intimidated to pray for somebody, um, which is a sad thing. Uh, but it just reminded me that yeah, sometimes it can be really intimidating. You know, you, somebody asks you, hey, would you pray over our gathering or something like that? And, um, yeah. What do we do? We start wondering, right? Maybe we're asking you to pray. You start wondering, gosh, well, what are the right words to use? What are the wrong words not to use, <laughs> right? We start thinking, please, Lord, don't let me say anything wrong. Don't let me, don't let me cuss or anything like that. You know, I just, just want to pray. I just want to get it right. Um, start thinking about yourself. You see that? You see how easy that is? We start wondering that. You, know, you use the right words, and you start thinking, hey, is God even going to listen to me? Like, I, should I really be doing that? Am I qualified to pray? <laughs> you, know, you start thinking things like that. Um, in, these, in these final verses, it's almost like David doesn't even care about any of that. He doesn't care whether he uses the right words. And David's witnessed the depth of his sin, David's looking at the perfection of God. And as he does that, he, he just can't help but to cry out to God to continue pouring out his love. Continue pouring out your righteousness, God. Continue pouring out your, your protection upon us, God. And help us not to become wicked. Help us not to become wicked and, and be driven away from your presence into, into utter darkness where we're unable to even get up off the ground or be saved. That's his prayer. I mean, in summary. God, please lavish your love and your protection and your faithfulness upon me and help, help me not to be cast out of your presence forever. Hold tightly to me. Hold on to me. And David is literally crying out to God like a starving man. And that starving man is dependent on someone else to satisfy his hunger so he doesn't wither up and die. Here's the thing. That kind of dependence upon God, it can only be practiced when you and I start running away from all the junk food that this world has to offer us. Self-promotion, self-advancement, self-gratification, self-protection. In conclusion, the only way to bow the knee before a perfect God in complete hunger and dependence is to simply see your sinfulness for what it is and to simply stop feeding it with the junk food of this world and to simply turn to Christ and his work at the cross in the empty tomb. At the end of the day, this phrase stuck with me. It was something I wrote in my journal as I studied. I think it should be on the screen for you. At the end of the day, we simply need to run from sin we simply need to trust in faith and simply need to depend on God in prayer. Doesn't that sound simple? It's simple, but it's hard. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you it's easy. There's nothing easy about the Christian life. But at the end of the day, it's so simple 
that little children can get this. Run from sin. Run from that which is wicked. Run from that which is evil. Run from it. Trust in faith. Not in yourself. Not in anyone else other than God. Depend on Him in prayer. Go to Him in prayer. Speak to Him. Let Him speak to you. Let God reveal that sin and at the same time reveal His faithfulness and goodness to you. Let Him do the work of covering you up. Let Him do the work of putting perfect makeup on those blemishes. Because the makeup He puts on you covers every possible blemish you'll ever have. And actually, I think the scriptures we read says he takes those blemishes, those, that sin, tosses it as high as the heaven are above the earth, far as the east is from the west, washes you white as snow, though, though your sins were like scarlet, right? Deep red. Though your heart was like a harlot, right? A whore. What God does is He changes, and He transforms, and He covers completely through the perfect work of Jesus at the cross. That's what He does. When Jesus said that He is the manna that came down from heaven, what He's literally doing is He's literally inviting us to feast on His presence in total dependence upon Him as we recognize our helplessness apart from Him. And, and here's the thing, when you, and, when you and I arrive at that place, then the way that you pray, or the words that you use when you pray, or even the sin that you committed last night or just a few moments ago in your mind, those things won't matter, they won't control you. You'll come to God in complete dependence. And you'll come to him in complete dependence upon his steadfast love, which is proven in the shadow of a bloody cross, in the doorway of an empty tomb, in the promise of the hope of heaven. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the message of the gospel. pray this morning as we close, Father, that you would lead us into your presence even more. Continue to reveal to us our deep brokenness, our sin, our need for you, your perfect righteousness, loving kindness, justice, your perfection. Help us to depend on you completely. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.